a new year to be with you, to be with one another. Lord, may we not take it for granted that we worship freely, that we gather freely. Um, and Lord, we begin a year thankful, grateful, and praying for our brothers and sisters around the world that do not have the freedom or the privilege. Lord, be with us this morning. Be with our children. Be with us in the coming year. In Christ's name, amen. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. After listening to Herod the king, the Magi went on their way, and behold, the star that had seen, they had seen when it rose in the east went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Then Herod became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Thank you, Adam and Amberly. Well, you might be wondering um, why our Christmas decorations are still up. <laughs> why um, our story, our scripture this morning is a Christmas story. Um, I mean, isn't Christmas over, right? I mean, didn't, didn't we get the memo? The 25th, it's done. The day after, you start packing stuff up, putting things away, right? Is everybody, that's how it works at your house. Who's got their Christmas stuff put up? Anybody? All right. You, you guys are done with Christmas. It's over. Start the countdown to next year, right? A few of us may still have our things up, but if, I'm, if, I'm, if we're honest about why we have our things up, it's for one of two reasons, right? One is because... We uh, were too busy to put it up um, the last week or so. Like uh, there was, we we're in my case, just lazy. Um, you don't want to do the put up. It took a long time to get up. You don't want to have to take, um, you know, all the time to put it up now. And so, um, or you're like my wife and you just want Christmas to go on year round, 365 days. So there is no end to Christmas, right? So, so most of us kind of have this idea that Christmas, um, Christmas is over the day after Christmas, or it continues on out of laziness, 
or out of a desire for the Christmas spirit to never end. And, and so um, while it's true that this week we didn't have a lot of time to put things up, and while it's true that, yes, we want the Christmas spirit to go on and continue on, the reason that our stuff is still up here this Sunday, the reason the candles are still burning, the reason the, the tree's still lit, and there's candy canes to be taken after the gathering off the tree. Um, um, um. The reason those things are still there is because technically, in many traditions, Christian traditions, Christmas season is still going. That we are actually still in the Christmas season. Now, for us, we know that prior to the 25th, we had this thing called Advent, right? This, this time of anticipation that drew us and led us to Christmas Eve. And for those that were in town, we gathered here and we got to, to remember and to celebrate to all that we've been preparing for, the arrival of all that we had been anticipating. Um, but then there was this day, and this Christmas day, this day of, of, of gifts and food and exaltation because everything that we had been anticipating and waiting for had actually come. And again, like... Some of us, we tend to just, okay, we hit the peak and, and we're kind of done. Like, we're, we're done with it. But in most traditions, in most Christian traditions, the 25th is just the beginning of the Christmas season. Advent takes us to Christmas Eve, but Christmas season is actually the 26th of December through the 6th of January, the 12 days that follow Christmas. Did you know that the 12 days of Christmas aren't before Christmas? They're actually after Christmas? I, you know, for a long time growing up, I didn't know that either because the way it's marketed, um, all the, the things that I can buy at Target or at Aldi or at Trader Joe's um, that aren't just the Advent ones, they're like the 12-day Christmas cookie things that you can open. They're all kind of pre-Christmas stuff, right? But the reality is, and the traditions that, um, uh, of our faith, is that the 12 days of Christmas lead us not to the birth of Christ, as Advent does, but instead, they are a celebration of the gift that arrived that first Christmas morning, and it's meant to grow in depth and width as we meditate on the wonder of the marvelous arrival of God with us. That's why the song goes from one to 12, right? Like they go from one gift to two gifts, to three gifts, to four, to five, to six, to seven, to eight, to nine, to 10, 11, 12. Each day that we meditate on, each day that, our, our, that we, that we um, contemplate the wonder and the amazement of what arrived that first day, the gifts expand, they multiply, they, they grow larger and larger. So if you want to think about it, the Christmas calendar kind of looks like this. And sorry for a little bit of history, but I think it's kind of important for us as we move into a new season is to kind of understand what it is that we're moving into. So the Christian calendar, Christmas calendar, um, looks like this. And again, there's a variety of expressions depending on your tradition, but it generally follows these kind of, this kind of flow. There's Advent, which starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And it takes us all the way to Christmas Eve. We've made that a part of our tradition as a faith family for six, six or seven years now, five or six years now. Um, Advent's become a big thing for us. Christmas Day, which we don't have to do a lot to, to add to, right? It's, it's already there. It's a part of our culture. It's things that we're in. Christmas season, the 12 days after Christmas, is something as a church we don't do a whole lot with necessarily. But there's many traditions that have the different feasts on each day, different celebrations on each day. Again, to kind of contemplate and wonder in amazement at the reality of what Jesus has come to do. And then on the 6th of January, there's this thing called Epiphany. And after the 6th of January, it's Epiphany Tide, following Epiphany. And it goes from January 6th to February 2nd, or in some, um, some traditions, all the way up to Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the season of Lent. 
which is 40 days before Easter. And so this is kind of the flow of the Christmas calendar. If Advent is waiting, uh, it's anticipating, inviting, desiring, beseeching God to come, Christmas season is a season of wonder, a wonder and amazement and awe at what John's description of what became real that first Noel. Here's how John described what we're meant to be in awe of these 12 days following the Christmas morning. He says, the word who was in the beginning and was God and in whom was life and the life was the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, has become flesh and dwelt among us. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory that we prayed for, that we saw it after in the songs that we sang just a moment ago, we've seen it the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christmas may peak on the 25th, yet the world-changing event demands continued amazement at what happened that one incomprehensible day when the Word became flesh. That's what the church has said over the last thousand plus years, that it's not just enough to celebrate the day of it, it, it demands contemplation and amazement and awe. That's why we have 12 days of Christmas. Each day of contemplation and wonder, the gift of Christ's arrival from, one true, from our one true love, like the song says, grows and grows. From a single bird's beautiful song to a drumline's chorus setting the beat for the entire world. Or as the psalmist had us pray, as, as Laura read for us, that the mountains give an exuberant witness and the hills are shaped with the continuous contours of right living. The rule and reign of God shapes life, all of life. That's what we contemplate as we think about Christ with us, God with us. This is what in some circles has been called the cycle of light. This revealing nature of what, what, um, what we need in Advent, what we long for in Advent, what comes at Christmas, and what becomes fuller and fuller in Epiphany. It's this growing declaration of Jesus' arrival that leads the Christmas season to its concluding with the Feast of Epiphany, the Feast of Revelation having joyfully celebrated the amazing wonder of the coming of light of life into the world, the season of Epiphany or Epiphany Tide, which we're about to enter into, flows out of Advent and Christmas and across various traditions and focuses on the appearing or the revelation of Jesus' identity and purpose. That's what Chaz had us seeing just a moment ago, right? We long to see him, to see his glory, holy, holy, holy. We want to see him recognize the manifestation of God with us in life. Epiphany is a time of increase, of growing visibility and tangibility of what one author notes as the manifestation of what has been largely hidden, made more widely known. That's what the focus of Epiphany is. That's what, when we transition from the end of one year into a new year, begins. A season of not anticipating, not wondering and amazement and all, but a season of seeing and experiencing in fullness even more, that which has been amazingly revealed over the season before. And so we move from anticipation to wonder to revelatory display, and, we can, and um, um, along with many traditions, again, we kind of enter into this cycle of, of light. And depending on the tradition, there's three events that tend to be the focus of this epiphany, this moving from Christmas into epiphany tide. The events are Jesus' baptism, and the voice that reveals him as the beloved son. Because again, Epiphany is about revelation, revelatory, seeing and experiencing the reality of God's kingdom come. 
His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the baptism of Jesus is a primary um, event in Epiphany Tide. The turning of water into wine is another one. Um, this is when Jesus' first miracle, it's the first kind of revelation to the people that he shares life with of who he is and what he's there to do. And then there's the visit of the Magi from the east. A star's light revealing and guiding Gentiles to the king of the world. Advent, again, is a season of anticipation. Christmas, a season of wonder. And Epiphany Tide, a season of enlightenment set to light on the Feast of Epiphany that's also called the Feast of Three Kings Day. Which brings us to our story today. This is how we get to where we're at this, this morning. Epiphany, Epiphany, the beginning of this season, the beginning of this season that we're about to walk in as a faith family, um, is commonly associated with the story from Matthew 2. The story of the visitation of the Magi or the wise men who were Gentiles, outsiders like us to the bloodline of Jesus. The church has long viewed the Magi finding Jesus thinking, thanks to the leading of the star, the leading of the light, um, as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61 through three, especially verse three, which reads this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The light of the world, the light of life has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now the image of these travelers, these um, from afar, these magis, which often fills our songs and nativity scenes. I don't know about you guys, but we have a couple of nativity scenes at the house. So they always have the magi in them. There's one actually back in the kids' room right now, a little Fisher-Price one that they've, been, that they've used um, over the last deal that's got the three, little, three wise men or whatever. Um, but, but nowhere in the story is there a mention of three kings or three wise men. Did anybody hear the number three in what was just read for Matthew? No? Did anybody ever hear the word king? No? And so... The number that, um, of these worshiping wisdom seekers came in the third century from a theologian named Origen. And it's postulated that he came up with three because there were three types of gifts given to Jesus and his family. And so the, the, we really don't know how many magi were actually in the party. We just think, okay, there was gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So he thought, well, there's probably three people then, three wise men, because each one gave a gift. But it's just an idea. It's not necessarily true or untrue. It's actually just not known. And it wasn't for another 300 years that they became kings. So in the 6th the sixth century is when um, they were kind of crowned as kings, as um, not just uh, seekers of wisdom, not just wise men, sages, um, but were, were rulers uh, and wealthy. And that's also when they got their names, um, Gaspar, Melchor, and Balthazar. Um, that's when their names came in the 6th century. So... so um, in truth, we really don't know how many magi traveled to Bethlehem, but we do know that the trip was long and that it was costly. We do know that the trip was long and costly, and we know that in part from the story that, that we read. And that, that, that going on such a trip, such a long and costly trip, um, would, would have to be compelled only out of a deep desire for what they were seeking. Um, and so if you remember in the story that, that, um, that Adam and Amberly read, there's a part that's really kind of horrid, right, at the end of the story, um, Herod's atrocity of murdering children under two years old, all the male children under two years old. The reason he, he took two years old is because when the Magi came, they had told him how, how they had thought when they first seen the star 
and about how long it had been. And so, so kind of postulating a little bit, assuming that Herod's going to add a f- little bit of time to whatever they gave them so he doesn't miss the, the um, taking out his successor. Um, most likely the Magi arrived somewhere within a few months to a yearish of Jesus' birth. And so they weren't there on the night of his birth. Again, sorry, all our nativity scenes are a little, a little messed up. But they weren't there on, 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 his, on his first night. But they made this months-long travel, at minimal months-long travel, to be there. A travel that would have been costly in time and energy and resources and all those kind of things. So the Magi's visit probably doesn't look like our nativity scenes. Um, and, and regardless of how we imagine the story um, unfolding or how we've filled in and created some holes in the story, um, what we do know is this, is that the first inclusion of celebrating this visitation of the Magi happened in the third century in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, and it's in Egypt that, um, uh, in Alexandria, that one author um, um, notes that most scholars think that the celebration was inaugurated to counter the Egyptian festival of the birthday of the god Ion, which is the god of time. And included in Ion's um, celebration was a drawing of water from the Nile, a going into the water and a coming out of the water, and was um, um, a part of a, a system to kind of recognize this kind of legends of from these springs around the Nile via Ion, wine coming up out of the water, the water becoming wine. And so most likely this feast of the, the Magi, this beginning of Epiphany Tide, um, came in the context of a people who were Christians who wanted to show and tell and exclaim and proclaim that it wasn't the God of time and the Egyptian God of time that, that did all these things. It was Jesus. That Jesus showed himself to be the God of gods, the God of time, the God of all time. That showed himself who turned water into wine, who came out of water and turned water into wine and showed his divinity and power. And so we see early on, even in the, both the, the visit of the Magi's and the inclusion into the kind of the church tradition of um, what's become Epiphany, the day of Epiphany, this kind of mixture of the revelation of Jesus to us, but also the, the proclaiming of the revelation of Jesus to others, often in contrast to um, the powers and systems and structures and religion of a current context of the current day. Like this, this season isn't just about remembering the story, but about proclaiming the story. The season we enter was birthed out of a desire to enlighten, to reveal who Jesus is in the kingdom he came to establish. The desire for enlightenment, for seeing Jesus in his kingdom as grace and truth sets the tone for the season of Epiphany. A season that, at least in the Protestant traditions, focuses on the manifestation of the light of life, the fullness of the light of life in Jesus, and the role of those whom the light of life said this to you and I. Jesus speaking says, you are the light of the world. You, me, us. Let your light, your light, my light, our light shine. The light of the world gives us the light to shine. The light of the world shines through us, reflects off of us and in us. And Epiphany is a season to remember both those realities. And Advent and Christmas, we're longing for, Advent especially, we're longing for the light, right? It's dark. It's the darkest days of winter. We want the light and the warmth. At Christmas, we receive it. We sit in the flame of it. It grows and grows, allows us to see with greater clarity the reality of what we live in and where we exist. And in Epiphany, we discover our place in the story of light. 
which again returns us to our story today. These magi were men of wisdom who were searching for understanding and knowledge. That's why they left their land to follow the star. They came from afar and they followed a light of the Christmas star, much like the one we saw last year. Um, 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 if you got to see that at all, the two planets coming together forming the Christmas star was pretty cool. But they were led this star, this searching for wisdom, for the reality of who the, how the world works and who rules the world, led them to Jesus. They sought after and followed the light and revealed the light as well. Think about it. They didn't just seek the light, but they came into Jerusalem and they revealed the light that was amongst and yet missed by the locals of Jesus' time. How ironic is it that outsiders came into the place where the light was and pointed out that the light was there. Those outside of the story came into the story, were seeking the story, led to the story, drawn to the story, and proclaimed to the ones who should have seen it, who had been living with the, with the reality of the light for months, if not a year already, that the light had come, that it was already there. These outsiders were searching, led by the light, while the insiders were blinded to the light amongst them. They weren't looking for it. And while we might suspect that finding a young child is the foretold wisdom of the world, especially after such a costly and calculated search, would compel laughter or doubt or cynicism. After all, he wasn't in the palace. That's where they went first, right? And he wasn't being proclaimed by all the people who should have known that he was there and were actually looking for him. So he's a peasant in a peasant's house and forgotten. You would think that that would, these guys seeking for wisdom, that would compel them to some sort of cynical approach, right? That this, is, this can't be the king that we're after. This can't be the wisdom that we're after. But instead... Instead, they worshiped. Instead of being cynical and wondering, what kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is he bringing in? What kind of wisdom does he show the world? They worshiped. And they were generous in their worship. They demonstrated in their humble generosity before a humble king what our scriptures call the fear of God. All in wonder at the presence of God with us, God for us, God in us. That Christmas season and Advent has been building up and having us lead to ponder. A wonder and awe which the Proverbs say is the reward of such a passionate and dedicated search for wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, says the Proverbs. They get to discover that. That's what epiphany is about, discovering this. Epiphany tide is a season of epiphany after the revelation of our Savior is a time to recall and reflect the good news of God with us, God for us, God in us as the light of life, as the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of life in its fullest for all peoples. To recognize that, to reflect on that, to worship at that reality, just as the, the Magi did. It's a time when the church focuses on the enlightening or manifesting nature of Jesus in his kingdom and a time to consider our part in the mission, our part in the story, to find a time for us to figure out our place in salvation story still unfolding as we reflect Jesus' light, his wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge of God and his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's why every year we start with kingdom epiphanies. Every year we start out as a faith family while we don't necessarily follow any particular tradition um, 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 perfectly or quite in line, we begin each year with this look at um, the nature of the king and his kingdom and our response to the nature of the king and his kingdom. 
Not because it's just a part of tradition and we just do it, but because this is the fullness of life. This is the way to life in its fullness. This is what we've been called to, to be light. As the light that we've just received and we spent the last month worshiping enlightens us and grows us into a place of seeing and believing. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to enter into the stories of the kingdom of God. Um, Stories that Jesus tells that help us see, that reveal, that enlighten us to the nature of who God is, of his kingdom, how it works, and our place in it. Now, these these stories um, have a particular name, right? They're called parables, right? These stories are called parables. But parables, contends one author, um, are this. They're stories with intent. They're not just stories randomly told, but they're stories with intent. They're analogies through which one is enabled to see truth. One is enlightened to the truth. Parables are much more than illustrations about heaven. We'll discover this along the way. We've talked about this for years, but let me say it again. Parables are more than illustrations about heaven. And though they are preference with the kingdom of God is like, they are not about heaven in some sort of distance or ethereal way. They are instead directed to life on this earth. They're stories of life on earth. The immediate aim of a parable is to be compellingly interesting. It's to be a story, something that we're drawn into, that we can see ourselves as a part of it. And in being interesting, it diverts our attention and disarms us. A parable's ultimate aim is to awaken insight and stimulate the conscience and move to action. It, a story invites us and disarms us before we can start trying to, to figure out why we disagree with whatever the story's trying to reveal. We find ourselves in it and can't help but being brought into it and figuring out what place we find in it. Because the reality is we're not so much like the wise men as we are the people of Jerusalem. That the light is amongst us and yet we missed it. We miss it. That's our tendency. Like, I, I, don't, don't hear me wrong. I do think there's, that we seek wisdom. We're seeking out God's wisdom. But our tendency is to be more like the insiders and, and miss the wisdom that's amongst us, which is why, again, every year we start off with these stories to remind us, to set us up, to expose in us what we miss about the kingdom of God. And not just stories that we tell, but stories that Jesus told, the one who is the light revealed. Like the prophets before him, Jesus told parables to prompt thinking and stimulate response in relationship to God, to one another, in the day-to-day lives we inhabit. That's what we're going to be doing. So as we enter Epiphany Tide in our own unique way, we'll look at four particular parables. The stories with intent that will, by God's grace, help us to live with intentionality in 2022. The stories are going to be the parable of the two sons, the parable of the laborers, the parable of the dishonest manager, and the parable of the talents. You don't have to remember all that. Don't worry. Um, What we're going to do over the next few weeks is immerse ourselves in a story each week with the expectation that that parable will reveal more and more of the true nature of God with us, God for us, God in us, and show us what our role in the Father's kingdom looks like in Dallas here and now. That's the expectation that we're going to have. But to do that is going to require not just us to be present in this space, but for us to engage with God in the stories in between this time. 
So already up on the website, or by the end of the day up on the website will be, if you, or on the app, whichever one you use first, there's a resource of, of a list of what parable will be in that week, and then um, a kind of a guide to help you read through the parable. Um, so um, ideally, if you read through the parable three times before you come back next Sunday, you'll be able to immerse ourselves in it with a lot more, hopefully with a lot more um, Oh, depth and, um, and insight, but we'll also be able to share some of those things together. And so um, it will allow us to actually help one another, encourage one another um, as we go into this. And so, so on the, in the app or on the website, my encouragement is this, is that for the next few weeks, like it, you don't have to add this to your quiet time deal. Just use this as your quiet time deal or whatever kind of study and time you have with the Lord. Like enter into these parables, Use the guides that we have. They're really simple. It's just a, like a paragraph for the first time you read it that kind of gives you a little background, a little insight, and a couple questions to ask. Some, the next one is some questions, some things to be looking for and kind of respond to as you become more familiar with the parable. And the third one is just, just a reading to allow and ask the Spirit to give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear as we come back together in community to hear the parable again. That's it. It's really simple. It's really accessible. But it also gives you something that you can talk about in DNA or in gospel community. And so that for the next month, that we make these our conversations in some of our quiet times. That's all I'm asking. Um, that's, what we, that's what we're asking over this next month. But here's the thing. Before we can get into the parables, to the kingdom epiphanies, we have to make our way through the rest of the Christmas story. We have to let ourselves, either for a few moments this morning, before we jump out of uh, Christmas season into epiphany, before we box up all of our Christmas stuff, before we, um, before we blow out all the candles for one last time, before uh, Lexi and, uh, um, and Kate take all the candy canes, like we have to, one last time, enter into the story of Christmas. We have to finish the story. Now, this story, the reason this story ends the story of the Christmas season is because I think it, it does something that is necessary. It kind of smashes all the sentimentality and polish of our commercialized Christmases, right? Like, Matthew's Gospel account, the Christmas story doesn't end with the village singing together arm in arm, or a family and friends reunited on their decorated tree with wishes fulfilled. Instead, it ends with fleeing for life, a massacre of young children, innocent children, and returning in trepidation to the place of God's intention, the place of God's work. It's not a story we expect or is one that's easily marketed, but it is a true story. That's what's important. A story that tells the truth of the reality of the world that we live in. A world where it seems like tyrants are in charge. And those who have would rather destroy the most vulnerable and indefensible rather than risk losing what they possess. And yet, whose days and dominion do not last. It tells the truth of reality, that darkness opposes light, that the world we inhabit is not neutral. Nevertheless, as John the Apostle said, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The story of God with us, God for us, God in us, the kingdom of heaven at hand, begins on earth, the same ground on which we work, the same ground on which we marry and play and pray and sin and find forgiveness even today. A world where power in people or in forces is inclined to oppress, where, whether politically, militarily, or economically. A world in which those who have, including you and me, including you and me, 
would rather destroy to defend whatever little or much we have rather than risk a loss. A world in which the ways that seem right lead not to life in abundance, but to destruction. And yet they do not last forever. Rather, as a true Christmas story reveals, they are exposed by the light, they're revealed by the light, and ultimately die off while the sun blazes on. That's what the Christmas story, how it ends. Not in sentimentality and polish, not in, in pomp and all those things, but in the reality of the world that we live in. The Christmas story ends in truth. The truth of the world that we're in. The truth that the world that we're in opposes light and at the same time that light overcomes it. Here in the words of Malcolm Guy is what this often overlooked part of the Christmas story, a part we are meant to contemplate and wonder about as much as any other part, as much as the, the voyage of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, as much as um, the, the night of the birth and, the, and the, um, um, the shepherds coming and the angels singing, as much as we contemplated and thought about those over the last month, this part of the story is meant to be a part of the wonder and awe as well, for it reveals much about Jesus' arrival. Malcolm Guy says this, he says, we think of him as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the font, but he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on the road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the lamb upon the throne. Perhaps the most profound and paradoxical image in the whole of the Christmas story is the ironic revelation of Jesus by those seemingly far off from the story, followed immediately by the destructive response of ones who were near to the history and the person. We should never cease to be astonished by the image that seems so counter to our vision of the Christmas child, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and his first arrival. The truth of this story means that we have one who not only entered our bruised and bloody world, the real world, a world where quarrels go on that we didn't start. A world where tyranny seems to have its way at times. But was himself bruised and bloodied in that same world. Bruised and bloodied, an innocent lamb slain like those children of Bethlehem and all the region who died for Jesus' name without ever knowing him who find with those who weep for their loss, the one who in the Revelation says wipes away every tear. Why? Because he has shared them and he has taken them upon himself. We'd enter the year poorly if we didn't take a moment to think about this story. If we didn't begin our year with the end of the Christmas season in a proper place. And there's a part of this story that, for me, um, is striking and compelling. That it, when I take the time, and I'm still enough and long enough to think about it, like in a space like this, that always convicts me. 
It's the part where the wise men pointed out the, the, to the Jewish people what they had missed. The return of their long-awaited true king. The kingdom of God there amongst them. And instead of being great rel- relieved, or like the wise men in just a couple of verses later who saw the star and its point in Bethlehem and were full of joy and exaltation, the people of Jerusalem were neither relieved or excited or in awe, but they were troubled, Matthew says. When Herod the king heard who the Magi were looking for and why, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. The word troubled depicts something being agitated, um, something being shaken back and forth, even though it was meant to be still. It's not just like you picking up a, um, a box and shaking it. It's like something that was meant to be not movable, but, but firm, becoming shaken up and out of place, set loose and off its, off its foundation. It's a word that describes getting too stirred up inside, an inward commotion that removes the calmness of mind, disturbs equanimity, disquiets the soul. The very opposite of what we think of and what we try and practice in our life with Jesus together. It's the very opposite of what we long for as a faith family. And the convicting part is not just that Herod the king was disturbed and unsettled. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to see why he would be unsettled, right? I mean, Herod, if he lost his visible kingdom, switched over to another king's domain, we see what he would lose. But it's not just that Herod's troubled, but the people of Jerusalem are troubled. But what about the people of Jerusalem, the insiders, the ones who are God's people in history, many of which were longing and waiting for the Messiah we know and all the other stories and how Jesus interacted with them that they were looking and waiting for it. What would agitate them about God's arrival and God's rule at their moment in history? What would upset their foundations at the foundation of God's kingdom? If I'm honest, at times, God with me, God for me, God in me, God ruling and reigning in the most unexpected means and places troubles me too. God's kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven troubles me. There is, if I'm honest, a fear not of God, not a fear that is awe and wonder at something more significant and more magnificent and more mysterious than that I inhabit and that inhabits me, but instead a fear of losing what I think is mine or what I want or what I imagine life to be that disquiets me. In truth, it's a fear that questions if the king and the kingdom really are better and best. If I'm honest, sometimes my soul's disquieted. I wonder if the same is true for anyone else, for any of you. I don't want to project it onto you. I don't think it has to be that way. I'm just telling you what's true of me and what this story compels in me. But I think because I'm a human with you and we've shared enough life together to know that at times the kingdom of God in our lives is troubling. That sometimes we don't really trust that the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus is better and best. Listen, Christmas, even our cultural Christmas is exciting. It's great, right? We love it. We celebrate it. We embrace it. It stirs up all kinds of positive emotions and images and it's polish and pomp, much of which are excellent and encouraging. But here's the thing. They're not if we don't read the rest of the story. 
All they are is pomp and circumstances, decorations, fleeting feelings. They go back into a box and come out a year later. Unless Christmas comes and unless Christmas doesn't come and go, and unless we tell the story of the light's arrival and continue the story into the darkness around us, within us, that is seeking out the light, not to worship like the Magi, but to snuff it out. Unless we are honest with that part of the story, unless we truly tell the story in its trueness, Christmas will come and go and nothing will change. But the good news is, every Herod dies, including the one in you and I. For a few moments, as we move into Christmas and enter Epiphany, as we leave one year and enter a new, let's consider these two movements. Again, I don't want to put it on you. So however the Spirit leads, there's two different ways that we can approach this quiet time. We can ponder the movement of wonder at the amazement of God with us into the manifestation of God with us, asking for increasing sight and to be light in the year to come. Or, if you're like me, we can move from trouble to trusting, confessing what disquiets our heart at the idea of God's kingdom coming over my kingdom, of God's way being the best way and different maybe than my way, and cling to the grace and truth that is Jesus and the revelation of his light. So just for a few minutes, we're gonna do what we've done all season long. We're just gonna quiet our hearts and minds. And so if you would, you can close your eyes or you can look down at the ground. It's an opportunity for us to end one year and begin another year in quiet, in a space of reflecting upon all that we have in Jesus. So over these next couple minutes, ask for increasing sight and to be light, or confess what disquiets and cling to grace and truth, however the Spirit leads you. Breathe in with me the light. Breathe out of life. Breathe in the light and out the life. Breathe in, God with you. Breathe out life in him. And just for a few moments, we'll be still and quiet.
If you feel led, you're welcome to stand and sing with me. When these days of shadow pass and suffering is no more, a fire in the 